Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. Guys, I've got some bad news. Ready? Prepare yourself. Here it is. People are literally doing the best that they can. Is that not terrifying? I know I'm scared about that. That literally, people who suck, I know we've all got them in our lives. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your shit-eating kid. Now, don't get wild. I'm not talking about the people in my life. I gotta tell you, I'm surrounded by fucking winners. I feel like I'm on the dream team here. Between my wife, who's a gem... She ain't perfect, but listen, you know who's even less perfect than her? Me! And she married me, and she stands me. A guy like me. And listen, I'm no slouch. You know, I could sit here, you know, be self-deprecating, do that whole thing. I know it works. I know that dog hunts. But the reality is, I'm not, you know, I'm a bit of a catch. I'm pretty, you know, I got a lot to offer. Let's be honest. I got a little scratch in the bank. I've got a very mediocre podcast. I'm doing fine. But my wife, she's awesome. My kid is awesome. My wife's family is awesome. My mom is excellent. She's hilarious. So I'm doing fine. But, you know, I got friends. I got people in my orbit who I'm not uh, pleased with. So I can only imagine you, the listeners of the Curious Podcast, also share this sensibility. Where you can't believe that there are people that you have to come in contact with regularly who are a fucking walking dumpster fire. They are a strolling disappointment on a regular basis. But that's life, you know? Figuring out a way in which to deal with these people in a kind, non-confrontational way. To deal with them with love and kindness and to hold your tongue when you really just want to teach them all the ways in which they're painfully wrong. Well, it seems as though that's sort of like the great, I don't know, quest, mission, uh, the great sort of exploration in life is, is, is saying less and doing more. It sounds like a self-help book. Say less and do more. From Deepak Chopra. Say less, do more. I heard Deepak Chopra doesn't tip, and that's really hard on me. But I digress. I, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't have a lot. I don't have a lot to talk about. Politics or politics. Life is life. You know, we're all just out here trying to make enough money for our family. Trying to make our life as meaningful as possible. Even though for most of us, perhaps not the absurdly religious ones, but for most of us. We know that even if we win the gold star in whatever this existence is, it's just we're in an experiment. And that there's a good chance that once our bodies have expired and we close our eyes and take that last breath, preferably at a White Castle where I'd like to pass away, that's it. It's kind of over. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, we just go away forever. I mean, if Einstein's right, it's the law of energy. And that just means that our energy is redistributed. Can I talk? 
Do, am I, have I ever articulated a sentence? Uh, it just means that the energy that's on the earth has always been here. It can neither be created nor destroyed. So the body, the soul in which your energy is focused into will redistribute throughout the world. And isn't that exciting? You know, you might, you know, I don't know. You might go into a fledgling young person, your energy, and who changes the world. Maybe you'll become a house cat. Eh, maybe you'll, God, hopefully, I... listen, if I became like a fucking sea snake, if anything in the ocean, if my energy gets redistributed to anything uncool in the ocean, I'm talking to sea eel, I'm talking, let's be honest, any shellfish, I don't want to be a fucking scallop. If I got to come back as a scallop, I don't care where, I, I could be off a reef in New Zealand. I don't want it. That sucks. That really sucks. So fingers crossed, God willing, you don't become a sea scallop. But other than that, I'm pretty sure wherever your energy gets redistributed, it's probably going to be pretty dope. So I, I you know, I'm, I, I, I got hired on this TV show um, for Disney Plus called Turner and Hooch. Great Tom Hanks movie that is now going to be a TV show. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm playing the part that he played in the movie, and that's all I'm going to say. Because I, you know, I my name does not belong anywhere in the same sentence as Tom Hanks, unless the sentence is, Josh, can you get Tom a sparkling water? And if that's the sentence, my reply, of course, would be, would Tom like a flavored sparkling water or just standard? And also, what size cup? Or, w- or would he like me to just... I'm happy to find a funnel and serve him the water. Um, does Tom prefer a crazy straw? Because I, I can look. I'm happy to look. Um, the reality is, you know, I, I feel very cool and honored and um, special that I get to inherit this role from him. And I think it will be a good time. And I'm going to go to Vancouver and shoot this TV show. And I'm going to bring my family. And that will be an interesting couple months. And that's been cool. People have been very nice about it. And I feel very lucky because God knows in this podcast, there have been moments in which I've felt utterly frustrated. Um, But, you know, listen, that's life. Um, I once heard a guy say, man, life's what happens in between the notes. And granted, this guy, I'm pretty sure, has a terrible credit score. But he really knew what he was talking about. <laughs> and uh, it seems like, yeah, life happens in between the big wins, in between the jobs and moments of frustration or strife or complex interactions and experiences in which that in the moment seem utterly just challenging and it's hard to understand if if they, you know, have meaning or why they're happening. But inevitably enough time goes by and you don't, you know, accrue a bunch of wreckage and light the city on fire, all of a sudden you're like, wow, that needed to happen so I could get here. I don't know. It's like a weird cliche platitude that it all kind of happens exactly as it should. But I'm starting to find that it does. But it does if you're like living a good life, doing the right thing. And you're not like over you're not overly reacting to moments in which feel like a loss or a disappointment. 
you know, you just keep trudging. You keep people on your side. I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed for this podcast. And in some form or another, their biggest sort of um, commandment in life is do nice things for other people. Kind of boils down to that, right? Pretty sure JC was talking about that, right? About the neighbors and doing unto them. I don't know. I'm not a theologian. But I'm down. I'm down with it all. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to do this job. I'm going to keep the podcast a chugging. Because, listen, I do a little podcast, I do a little YouTube, and thank God for these gigs. Because, you know, in the moments when Hollywood's not too interested in your boy J. Peck, this podcast, the silly YouTubian videos, they get me through. People like you listening, you know? So I'm very, very uh, appreciative of this. All right. Probably talked enough, and I've probably talked about a big boat of nothing. So why don't we get on to our guest, who has a lot of good shit to say, and his name is Zach Brath. Um, Zach and I, as you'll hear, we've known each other for over a decade, or at least I knew him, and he now knows that I exist, for sure. I've been in his home. Um, but, I, you know, I've always been such a big fan of Zach. I think he's incredibly talented. His movie Garden State was like a touchstone moment for me in my life. I just remember falling in love with that movie um, and the writing, the directing. Garden State's just one of my favorite films. And especially when I think I was 20 when I watched it, maybe... Maybe no, I guess I was younger. I was seventeen when I watched it, and uh, it was it was just something special. I was a I was a big big fan, and I still am. And I feel lucky that he did the podcast. We recently were connected when we did a thing for the James Corden show, where we did the first ever Jewish boy band. Just saying, if you haven't seen it, YouTube it. It's a good time. Called Boys to Menorah, the first Hanukkah boy band song treat yourself. So anyway, I saw Zach while doing that and I was sure to corner him and beg him to do the podcast and he was nice enough to indulge me. So uh, when the pod starts, we are talking about the new series Watchmen on HBO in case you're a little confused and you're jumping into, you know, the conversation that's halfway started. But uh, that's how I roll, you know? We show all the sort of bumps and bruises on the Curious Podcast. We're not trying to have some fun veneer here. I'm not Terry Gross. I'm Josh Peck, and this is a Curious Podcast, not on NPR. And it, this isn't one of those funny, like those these you know fancy podcasts with a narrative, a la Serial or some shit Wondry's doing. They're all very good podcasts, but this is real life here. It's uneven, it's imperfect, and it's fucking me and Zach Braff chopping it up. Enjoy. The writing, I mean, if it doesn't win fucking every TV award, it's, it's, it's bullshit. Yeah. But um, my, I was telling, texting my buddy who loves it, and he's like, you're listening to the Damon uh, Lindloff podcast about it, right? And I'm like, no. He sent me the link, and so all day today I was listening to that. It's like a Watchmen, like, behind. Yeah, it's basically like him talking about Watchmen and, and, uh, and explaining, because, you know, it's, it's, it's like Lost in that, like the show Lost in that it's 
can be confusing and, and mysterious. And so he's sort of explaining a lot of stuff. You got to really follow it. Yeah, but it's fucking brilliant. It's it's incredible. You think they had an ending for Lost no. all along? No way, I think way, he would right? probably admit that. Yeah. I think he would admit that they probably had no idea Lost was going to go that long. And they kept and they had painted themselves into hundreds of corners, so they didn't know what to do. I'm sure he would say that. I bet you when he attacked Watchmen this time, he he was more careful to to plan for a long haul. Is this that's his too, JJ's? Um, Damon Lindelof was um, one of the main writers of Lost. I think the showrunner. Oh. Maybe JJ produced it, and I'm not sure if they wrote it together. We should you'll you'll Google that and fix this. <laughs> but um, but but Damon Lindelof was one of the main writers at least. And and Watchmen is is his. You know, he he loved the comic books that were that were the that were created, and then but they ended, and this was his as a fan of the comic books and being a genius writer. He said, "This is how I would imagine it would continue." Is it important as a writer to have source material like the Watchmen coming in all the time, making you utterly frustrated with? Like making you question what why do why do I even do this? It's well, so I good. think what I do or what what a lot of writers imagine would say. Well, I don't know what a lot of writers would say. Oh, well, my answer is when I when I actually get my ass in the chair to write, it's so um, specifically me and my voice and my view of the world, for better or for worse. I'm not someone who has yet who knows, to set out and try and do what someone like Damon Lindelof is doing with Watchmen. But I watch it with awe. I mm. go, holy fuck, this guy, it's like a novel. I mean, this guy is 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 creating something so intelligent and so smart. It's it's TV on its on its highest level, in my opinion, because it's it's my friend described it. Uh he said it's like he said it's like a comic book for people who love novels. Um, and, and so I, I get to watch, I watch it with just admiration going, I, I could never imagine writing something like that. Um, what, what, a what, a, what a talent it's fun. It's like watching a great actor. You go, you know, I'm, I, I think of myself as a decent actor, but I, but I watch some actors and I go, fucking hell, man. Joaquin. I don't know if I should be doing this anymore. <laughs> Joaquin, I can't. Joaquin Phoenix is the ultimate example or, or Adam Driver. I just think is, is just so incredible. How is he so good? He's just incredible. I mean, uh, in Marriage Story, uh, I think he's the most impressive part of the film because he's like a he's like Brand. I mean, he's like a, a Brando to me. I mean, uh, I, that's probably hyperbole to some, but to me, he's like a young Brando. Do you think that it's interesting? Right, I think about um, David Benioff. Is that yeah. his name? And he wrote one of my favorite movies, which is 25th Hour. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing that. And while it's one of my favorite movies and I, I revere it, I think that's within my universe. Like there is in, you know, a possibility over the next 30 years, maybe if I line it up perfectly, I could perhaps accomplish something close mm -hmm. to that world. Like, you know, it's a hero story, but it's very New York. It's, it's small, contained emotional you mean as a filmmaker is that what you want to do well like as a writer maybe or as a filmmaker but then i look at game of thrones <laughs> what he went on to do and i go oh what happened yeah. like that i have no understanding of and could never ever imagine that i could write even a page of that yeah i think that i guess maybe 
what someone might say to us who both I feel the same way is you cannot possibly think it's like it's like aspiring to climb Everest and standing at the bottom and going, are you fucking kidding? This is impossible. Yeah. And he would say, yeah, well, you get a team together and you break it down and you you talk about it beat by beat and you can't look at it like that up at the mountain. You got to look at it like, all right, what is this episode and how do we break it down? Again, I'm just trying to rationalize it. It's not a way of writing that I that – I, it's not a way for me personally that I can think about writing. Mm. Um, but I'm also not, I'm also not very, those things take so much outlining and structure and planning. You need so many bones on the, on the, on the skeleton before you even begin to think about adding everything else. And my personal way of writing is just to, to write and see where it takes me. You're not an outline guy? No, I wish I was. I feel like you kind of have to be, but then maybe you don't. That's what the writers tell you. Well, you, can, <laughs> you know, everyone will tell you, you know, read all that shit and then throw it all out the window. Right. It depends what you want to write. If you want to write a super commercial, you know, heist movie, you know, you're probably going to have to follow the heist movie structure. Yeah, you need the beats. But when, you know, when when you're writing things that are personal and, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm more of a school of just write, 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 see where it takes you. Then you'll have to go back and, and edit and, and, and shape it all. Mm. But to use a, a really hackneyed analogy, it's like, I think of it like, assemble a fuckload of clay and then go, what the hell is this? And then start to shape it. Because what, what you want to say will come out, I think, if you just start writing. I mean, for me, I just write sometimes, I know who the characters are a little bit, but I'll just start writing a scene between the two of them. And as an actor, I'm kind of improvising their dialogue. Mm. And and I'm just kind of having a I wrote something yesterday and, and I and I had these two characters in mind that I'm that I'm playing with for this new thing I'm working on. And I just started I knew the setting, I knew the vibe, and I knew who I think these two people are. And I just started improvising their dialogue. Now, will that end up in the movie? I have no fucking clue. But it helps me figure out who they are. Sometimes something will come up and I go, oh, that's cool. That that should be part of his backstory. I like that. And so you don't know if all of that's going to end up in the film. But but you but for me, the way I like to write dialogue and 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 is to is to start that way. Start maybe it's because I'm an actor as well that I like to sort of improvise in my head the scene between these two people and and see what comes up. I mean, I like to think of it like shit's coming out of my unconscious that I that I clearly want to want to write about. I wonder if you know, and I uh, I wrote this this pilot that I sold to Hulu, and that's sort of been my only foray into writing. But in doing so, and all the people that I trust who I've sort of given it to, any writing I do, they're always pushing this idea of an outline on me, which I completely agree with. Because if I just start and I just let it be like a vomit pass, I find myself in the woods halfway through going, right, right. Now, get now, here. Now, of course. Now, granted, when you're selling stuff to, to, to streaming platforms and networks, you're not going to get anywhere with that outline. They want right. all of that stuff. I guess what I'm talking about is really free form. It could be an extra. Let's say you're going to write an ind independent feature for yourself. Yeah. Or or even with your Hulu show, to just do it, to just write, 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 and you'll figure stuff out. And then you'll have to shape that into an outline. But you may, in a free writing exercise, go, holy fuck, I just had an epiphany. That character 
you know, what if X, Y, and Z happened to him? Because that just came out of this writing session. That can be really cool. And maybe that's all you got out of that writing exercise was right. that the backstory of one of the characters. But that's how I figure stuff out. If I just sit there, sometimes I've tried it where I'm like writing a Word document that's almost like a summary. And I'm like, and then Jim meets Carl and they go to the diner. And it just doesn't is it just isn't as inspiring to me totally. as 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 just improvising a scene between the two of them. You know what I mean? That's just kind of how I think it's because I love writing dialogue the most. It's kind of oh, like yeah. my my way into things. And I think outlines are inherently it's like forensics, yes. right? Yeah, it's putting but together if you're a puzzle. Good at it, by the way, I wrote a movie. I with suck my, at puzzles. <laughs> I know. I wrote a movie with my brother called Wish I Was Here, and he's very good at structure and outlines. So it was. You know, another route to go if you feel that way is to have a, a writing partner who's stronger at that. And we were a really good yin yang in that department because he has read all of the all of the right books and and all of the all of the structure stuff about okay, by this page this should happen. And um, I have to say, I've always been um, I always love it when someone's done that work, but when I'm writing alone, it's very hard for me. I'm dying to ask this because you've had this incredible life and had the highest heights and had the best of everything, you know, the uh, you're you're the goal, right? You you're living the dream. And yet, <laughs> well, thank you. You're, you're cheering me up this morning. <laughs> from, you know, listen, Zach, come on. You've had the success, beautiful women, the life, right? But is there any feeling as good as when you're in that fugue state in front of the blank page and like five pages comes out of you. Does, do any of those feelings come close? No, I was just thinking actually the other day about a moment in, in like, this would have been like before I made Garden State and, and I was really proud of the script. Um, and I remember reading some of it to my mom and, and I, I was just so proud of it. I couldn't believe that some of it came out of me. And I remember turning to my mom and we were both looking at each other and she had this look without being insulting, like, you wrote this? <laughs> yeah. And so it was, it was one of the perfect moments of my life where, yeah, it was definitely one of the highest highs of, of having, having written and having been proud of something I'd created and then sharing it with my mom and having her have this look on, on her face, like, holy shit, this is good. Um, yeah, that's the, that is the highest high. That's the there's there's no there's no I have found no no greater feeling than um creating something on your own and 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 it, and it being good. Um it's very hard <laughs> though. Yeah. I find writing to be the hardest thing of the things I do. So I don't want to bury the lead here because Garden State means a lot to me. Oh, thank you, man. <laughs> you don't have to. It was edited right there. <laughs> I mean, you're sitting in my house, and it was edited right in that living room. With I had no furniture. I first bought this house, and um, there was not a single thing in it other than uh, the Avid, and uh, I think a couch and a table and a coffee machine, and uh, and that's where we we put it all together. And we are in. What was originally Steven Spielberg's house? Yes, this was um, Steven Spielberg's first house in Los Angeles, and I confirmed that when I when I met him because I I was I said to him, you know, was the realtor just selling to the aspiring Jewish filmmaker in me, <laughs> or did you really live at this house? And he goes, Yeah, that was my first house, and and we had a really nice chat about 
uh, about this place. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I find it's, it's sacred ground. So it's funny. I hope I do it justice. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. Of, that Spielberg, he really gives a lot to live up to. God, I, do you, it's funny. There's no way you remember this. Do you remember the first time we met? Um, I think it was a, um, a Howard Stern party, right? Close. Because I remember Stamos brought you to, you know, Howard Stern comes out to LA and Jimmy Kimmel always throws him these parties that are very hard to get into. Yes. I, I, I didn't make the cut a few times, um, but I, I'm a huge that Howard. That hurt? That hurt a little oh, bit. Oh man, I'm a huge Howard fan. And, and I know Jimmy well too. He's a sweetheart, but I was like, one, oh, I did something so embarrassing one year. It's, it's, I mean, I cringe to to even <laughs> say it out loud, but I'll no one's but no one's listening. So nah. I, I uh, oh, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> but I, I literally, I heard that that Jimmy was throwing a a party for Howard Stern. And he was going to be out here, and I literally texted him something like, "Hey man, what you up to this weekend? You want to get together?" <laughs> And, oh no! Uh, yeah, because I hadn't made the cut, and I don't even think Jimmy replied to that. It was so embarrassing. Yeah, what are you gonna say? Yeah, what are you gonna say? No, yeah. I have plans. Sorry, I have plans but anyway, another time media. I did make the cut. Thank you, Jimmy, and because um, I, I really I, I love Howard. I know him a little bit as a as a friend, and he's this actually just a sweetheart of a of a of a of a man. You know uh, who he is on on the radio is of course him, but. In his private life, he's a lot more quiet and subdued and shy. And anyway, I'm blabbering. I remember meeting you. You were like Stamos's date at one of those things. Well, it was funny. We were shooting a pilot for our show, Grandfather, that we did right. for a year. And he knows I'm a big Howard fan, and we became quick friends. And I think he was. I don't know. It was. He must have been in between girlfriends at the time, but there wasn't like a particular. <laughs> you were lucky. <laughs> I was the girl, I guess. And he was like. I remember it was, it was Passover, the first night of Passover. And he goes, what are you doing on Friday night? Like Jewish stuff? <laughs> and I said, no, nah, I don't think so. He said, because I might have something better. I said, better okay. than Jewish stuff? What could that be? <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, you're going to set the bar high. And he goes, uh, do you want to go to Howard, uh, go meet Howard and go to Jimmy Kimmel's house and have a party there? And I was like, no, no. Like that... I don't belong there. That's the last thing I want to do. And I've had a few opportunities to meet Howard in the past. And I've never taken the opportunity because as a diehard listener, I know who Howard is and that he doesn't really want to leave his apartment. No. And he doesn't really want to meet me. No. And I get that. And so I go, he's given me enough. I don't need 20 seconds with him right. of like a nice exchange. But I go because I got to go. And you're there, and I'm there. I'll never forget this. I walk in, and I had been on Kimmel's show because his kids liked my, my Nickelodeon show, so he knows me a little. And I walk into the house, and he sees John, and he sees me. He goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> Welcome to my house. Who invited you? Yeah. And then, dude, I mean, I, I've talked about it before, so I don't care. I'm sitting next to Jason Bateman. Sia's there. Jennifer Aniston. I mean, this was a fucking high level party, no? Yeah, well, yeah, because everybody loves Howard, and he never comes out to L.A. Oh. And you know, Jimmy knows everyone in, in in town, so it's like, yeah, it's a star fest. It was it was pretty spectacular. And by the way, everyone, thankfully, and I don't know if this is a move, and I'm interested to hear because I remember you had a hundred inch plasma TV. Do you remember that? A hundred. 
No, I, who knew no, that? No, sorry, it was bigger than that. I remember at the time I walked into his house, and I don't mean to blow Jimmy up, but at the, but I'm sure he, he won't care. He had like the biggest plasma TV I'd ever seen. I didn't even know it existed at the time. And this was like 10 years ago, maybe. Not 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago, six years ago. Yeah, You maybe. would know because it was your show. When did your show come out? It was, we did the pilot 2015. So like four or five years ago. Oh, sorry. Ago. Yeah, so it was like five years ago. And all I remember is the giant TV. Anyway. Look, you got a nice plasma here. Well, I know, but I'm this is- I'm not sure it's 100 though. But no, but this is like, these are more common now. But back then it was- I don't know. Yeah, it was some famous people shit. I remember a big shit. ass TV. Yeah, famous people shit. I did, it was. I I did this move with Bateman, and I'm so glad that I did. I call him Bateman now. Oh yeah. Uh, and which was that? And I wonder if if it would affect you the same way. Obviously, so many people know him for his acting, but I had he had actually just directed this movie that I really enjoyed, and so I led with that because I was like, I wonder if acting comes a little easy to him. He's heard it, but to be sort of uh, complimented as a director. Mm. I wonder if that might mean something. I'm sure it did. He opened up like the Hoover Dam. It was beautiful. We talked for like an hour. What's the film? Uh, Bad Words. This was four years ago. Yeah, but he's also done, uh, since then, I don't know if you're watching Ozark, but he's done some just amazing work on Ozark too. But the first time you and I met yeah, was ahead. at the 2003 Independent Spirit Awards. Oh, that was a good year for me. You won. Yeah. I had won as an ensemble for a movie called Mean Creek, and we were standing on a carpet together. And I remember my mom, who knows your family from Jersey, was like, I know his mother. She's lovely. So Jersey. Jersey Jewish. <laughs> like, we all know each other. Yes. And I didn't have the balls to be like, we kind of have a thing. But... And also, because Garden State had meant so much to me, and I was like, I didn't even know. I just remember us passing, and you smiled, and you were very nice, and I just was like, ah, I missed my shot, but here we are. Oh, uh, well, now, you, listen, that's a lesson to anyone out there who never give up, never surrender. <laughs> right. Here we are in my living room, finally. So let's track it. What, where's the seed for Garden State? How does it all begin? Uh, well, I always knew I wanted to make movies. I, I I I loved cameras and photography, and my father was a huge movie buff. And um, I was got involved in theater at a young age, and I just knew that this was the career for me. It was I loved gadgetry. I loved tech stuff. I was in a tech theater. I was into the idea that there was a job that combined cameras and techie stuff with art. Mm. was like it's the most tailor-made career for me ever. Some filmmakers aren't into the, the, the tech and the gadgets and the cameras and stuff. I'm so into it. Um, and so I always knew that it just was the right path for me. Um, I went to film school at Northwestern and, and um, really just spent four years working on every student film I could work on to to get better and better and better and, and learn every aspect of production. And then I got out of school. I was PAing on on music videos and commercials, and I had started to form what would be the script for Garden State. But it was in many many pieces. It was like I said, it was a scene here or there. It was it was ideas, a few things from my childhood, a few things from my life, the things that I was stressing about, the things I would write in my journal about. Um, and it began to take shape because I was feeling this malaise that people have since called the quarter-life crisis of just feeling like lost. Like, you know, your whole life, it, my whole life to that point had been just leading up to 
to college or leading up to tw- turning 21 so you could drink legally. Like there hadn't been a plan for anything after that. Right. And uh, and so, and then you graduate, I graduated from college and I just felt so intimidated by trying to form a, a life and, 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 and create this idea of home for myself because I felt very lonesome and depressed and um, I couldn't go back home because it was no longer home anymore. That's where that sort of that line from Garden State came from. Um, um, maybe that's all a family really is: being homes, uh, a group of people that miss the same imaginary place. Because I, I felt like I was homesick for a place that didn't really exist for me anymore. Mm. Um, so I was writing and 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 and, uh, and auditioning and and kind of trying to hit the industry, the town with, with everything I uh, could. And then I got scrubs. Um, and when I got scrubs, uh, the first thought I had was like, I bet this might help me get my film made. Really? Yeah. That's really what happened. Would you call yourself a filmmaker first and sort of an actor second, or is it all kind of the same? It depends on the year. <laughs> some years I haven't, I haven't, some years I freaked out one year because my SAG insurance was, was about to get downgraded because I hadn't acted in so plan long. Plan two? That's fucking Ooh. embarrassing. You don't want to be plan two. I don't two. want to be plan two. Did the copay on that? <laughs> 35, if maybe if 40 you're not bucks? in SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, and you're listening to this, you probably think we're a bunch of douches. But I, you know, there's a, there's a thing that happens as an actor when you're successful enough that you reach the better SAG health plan. And it's like a rite of passage. You're like, oh my God, I'm in plan one. That's the fancy shit. Yes. I can get like dental. Yeah. It's a vision once a year. (laughs) And uh, yeah, vision once a year. (laughs) It's so funny. I've never talked about this with anyone. And uh, one, a couple years ago, I was doing a lot of directing and not acting. And my, my, I got downgraded and I, I had like, it's so silly because it's, it's, it's fine. Plan two is fine. But I, I, I was so, I got in my head about it. I was like, oh my God, am I not an actor anymore? What, who am I if I don't have plan one? So I, um, I, I literally started acting more for, because of, because of the of health insurance. Been there. Not because of the financial thing of it, um, but because I, it, it got, it, it was a mind fuck in my head. It's, it's silly to say it out loud, but it was true. So when I say it depends on the year, some years I, I go all out and I'm, I'm more directing and, and more stuff. And then other years, um, you know, I'll get a, uh, I'll get a couple cool roles, um, and I'll, and I'll be doing more acting. I, I really truly love both. And, um, the filmmaking stuff takes so much more of your time. You know, when you commit to, to, to make a movie, it, it's, it's two years of your life. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's a bigger time commitment. So, so I, I don't know. I, I bounce back and forth. I, I, I can't really answer that, honestly. Did you, so you're writing these scenes from, from, from Garden State and you're pulling from like these moments in your life and sort of this inspiration and then what, because I'd read something to the effect of like you completed the script in like six months. Like it was pretty rapid when it was time to go. Well, like I said, it was in lots of pieces. It was all over the place. It was literally, some of it was on scraps of paper. I mean, uh, there's probably a scrap of paper that says there's a diploma on the ceiling. Yeah. You know, it was in pieces all over the place. And what happened was I got I got scrubs and, but then they said, we got the, I think we happened was we got the, we got the pickup. And then they said, awesome, but we're not going to shoot f- for like, f- 
I can't remember the timeline. It was either we got the pickup and they said we're not going to shoot for four months, or we shot the pilot and they said we're not going to know anything for four months. It was something like I, I I had a little money in my pocket. Well, I had a lot of money in my pocket for for someone who was broke, um, and I then thought this is kind of a sign from the universe. I got I got and I have some momentum now because in Hollywood, momentum is so important. Oh, and, Hollywood's a pretty girl. Right, they all they want they want what somebody else just had, right? You don't want to become stinking off a breakup for like you right. know the last eighteen months. Right. So it's momentum, momentum, momentum. So off the momentum of Scrubs, I thought, let me. I'm an idiot if I don't sit down at my dining room table and really focus on putting this idea together. And I and I did. I don't know how many months it took. It was f- f- maybe four to six months of really of really um, giving it full attention, not not being lazy about it, and finished the script. Um, and then what happened was I, everybody passed. There's not a single person in Hollywood with a telephone and a desk really? that didn't pass. And are they passing? Is it just a no? Is there a caveat? Like we love some, it, but no. There were some people with caveats who said things like, yeah, if you give it a, you know, it doesn't have much of a three act structure. We talked about, um, uh, it's it was you know it wasn't it wasn't it's small it, it didn't like fit into was... any uh, it didn't fit into any at the time it didn't fit into any um you know there's been a, a, a zillion um quirky indie copies <laughs> call it Zach no copies. not copies <laughs> I was I was inspired by people I was inspired by plenty of people and copied them but um uh, there's been a lot of the the genre, if you will, since. But at the time, they they just couldn't put it in a pigeonhole, and I just couldn't get any traction on it at all. But you knew it was good. I was confident that it was good. I was confident that I had something to say. I had no idea it would become what it became. But I I had an, I had an idea that for a first film, this is interesting, and this was personal, and this was a movie I'd like to see. Do I always you- think it's a good thing to say. You know, there's a zillion things on TV right now, but. Most ninety eight percent of it, I have no interest in watching. Mm. When you find those gems that you that that are for that are, f- when I find those gems that are for me, I go, oh my god, I'm so happy this exists. This is fucking great work, and I'm so glad this filmmaker made this. So I felt in my own way, there has to be some audience that feels this way about you know being in your early twenties and feeling lost and 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 uh, depressed and and. Hopefully there'll be enough to to warrant a, a, a theatrical release for this. Do you send it to Bill Lawrence for his notes? Um, I didn't really give it to Bill. Our 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 relationship developed over the nine years we did Scrubs. In the beginning, it was he was very much Big Brother, a little bit dismissive of me, um, which is pretty. I, I've been in that. Same I wrote place. A, I wrote a I wrote a, a a spec episode of Scrubs and literally found and gave it to him and literally found it in someone I didn't. Someone found it in the parking lot with tire tracks on it. No, I swear to God, he'll he'll t- he'll admit this story. He'd be embarrassed. I'm telling it on your podcast. But, That's rough. Yeah, um, it's pretty emphatic. I mean, God, what a statement. Yeah, and it's not even like if you did the if you did the movie version of it, there'd be tire tracks on it. But there really were tire tracks on it. Um, so. I, what happened was the next step was, um, I, again, I had the balls to do something pretty courageous because I'm with CAA, um, and, and, and they were doing their best, but they, again, it was just not getting any response. 
you get a couple no's and you've lost like the I feel like the suits can take one no, maybe two. They get three, four, five. They're yeah. losing the wind in their By the sales. way, that's happened to me on, on, on everything I've ever done, by the way. I think that's important for people who are aspiring to, 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 to take on Hollywood. It, it, um, it's You just can't get stopped, even though sometimes you want to get fetal and, and, uh, and get under the covers. There's Everything I've accomplished is, is an example of I just didn't take no for an answer. Yeah, I may have pouted for a, a, um, 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 a day or a week or a month, but I eventually um, kept going. So at CAA, I eventually I was in the building, and there's a there's a the top agent at CAA. His name is Kevin Uvane, and uh, he's always been a, a was, he at the time was a supporter of mine. He he really liked me. He was one of the people that signed me to the agency. But you know he's the top dog. You don't have too much contact with him. And I was in the building, and I had the the chutzpah to walk into his office. And I remember he looked up at me like, you're not supposed to just walk into my office. Right. This isn't like your dad's law firm. What are you doing? And and then I just said, I tried to charm him. And I said, Kevin, you've always been so helpful to me and you've been amazing to me, but like my movie's kind of dead in the water. Can you please help me? Because like people listen to you. And, and he kind of paused and he thought for a second because he had loved the script. And he said, "You know who should you know who should have this is Jersey Films. Jersey Films, which was um, uh, Danny DeVito, Stacey Schur, and Michael Schamberg's company, and they had a young executive there named Pam Abdi. And he said, I'm gonna I'm gonna call Pam Abdi because this is just like this movie's perfect for her. So that that moment was one of the key moments that changed my life because he gave it to Pam and Pam loved it. I went to meet with her." And it was she was a Jersey girl, and it was just a love fest. She got it. She's like, this is a story for our generation, and no one's telling this kind of story. And she said, it's probably going to be hard to get it made, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. And you don't have anyone attached at this point. It's no just one's you attached. and a script. It's just me, and now Jersey Films came on board. Yeah. But then we went out. Again, now I've got a, a fancy production company on board. No response in terms of studios or money or anything like that. So then my first hi- so then we shoot a season of scrubs and my first hiatus from scrubs I did one of my dreams come true which was there's a, a theater in New York called the Delacorte Theater which does Shakespeare in the Park every summer. Mm. I always wanted to do Shakespeare there. It's just it's uh it's just a, a cool actors write a passage to do Shakespeare in the Park one summer. And I knew and so I was there we were doing Twelfth Night and I knew that Natalie Portman had done a show there, and she was the archetype of of really who I wanted to play the part. I, I, it's every I, Jewish man's dream. Natalie every Jewish Portman. man's dream, of Go course. On. Every Jewish man's dream, but also uh, just an extraordinary. In addition to being stunning, uh, just an, an amazing actress. Oh yeah. And she, so when I was writing, I kind of had her in mind. She was like the archetype, like mm. you know. And I think it's good when you're writing to have. Uh, when I'm writing, I like to have actors in mind, even if you can't necessarily get them. It's good to like think of their face. So I wrote Natalie in the Delacorte when it rains, you, you, you can't do the show, obviously. So I was, remember being in costume and sitting in my dressing room and it was raining. And I wrote Natalie a letter saying, I'm sitting in what I think was your dressing room at the Delacorte Theater when you did a show here. And uh, I don't know if this will even get to you, but I really would hope you'll consider reading this. Well, it got to her. She read the movie. She loved it. She said, I'm going to be in L.A., um, on such and such a date, let's have lunch. Okay, let's 
Am I going too fast? No, no. This is the best. <laughs> but I need to know. Natalie Portman says, let's get lunch. I'm going, it's red alert time. What am I going to wear? Where are we eating? She's a vegan, right? And kosher. <laughs> like, a are vegan you... kosher. That's a lot. It's a, it's a tall order. <laughs> right. Like, are you like, Only in oh, Hollywood can you find a vegan kosher restaurant how, in New York. How do I go to lunch with Natalie? Po- I mean, this is aristocracy. Whenever I have been called upon, him, there's a lot of people... There's a handful of people in my career that I've had to... I just did a movie with acting with De Niro where I'm in every scene with him. And and so it's the same kind of thing. I give myself this pep talk being like, if you're intimidated, it's not going to work. So even if you're feeling those feelings, you have to um, hide them and (laughs) act. You're a good actor. Act like someone who's not intimidated at all. Yes. So I sort of generated that. Um, And... And acted like uh, she was just a nice uh, young actress that I had no idea who she was. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I fully, fully pulled that off. But but I would imagine someone, and I don't know her, but does that fade away after five minutes where you're like, oh, you're just a human. Let's dig in. With Natalie? Yes. No, I mean, I, th- I think, again, with all these people, with, with, with people I really look up to and admire and, and, and uh, that I've worked with, uh, no, of course you have glimpses of that. I mean, in this movie, I'm, like, I'm doing the scene with De Niro where we're like, it's just me and him and a hospital woman. We're screaming at each other. And, he, and I eventually slap him across the face. And, of course, there's moments where in my head I'm like, oh, my God, De Niro is fucking screaming in my face. This is the greatest moment of my life. Yes. With Natalie, you know, I'm... She's, there's so many moments in Garden State where she's giving a performance. Like, I can't fucking believe how good of an actor she is. Um, but I, I'm going to fuck everything up if I don't hold it together and act normal. You can't fanboy. You know, you have to, you have to, you have to rise to the occasion of holding it together. Um, what do you- and I think she, she was awesome, too. It, it, it always comes from the person. You know, De Niro couldn't have been cooler. Natalie on the set couldn't have been cooler. She was just, you know, she just egoless and normal and, and great, which, which, which makes all the difference. I mean, I'm sure you've worked with assholes, and I have, too. You, then, it's, then the experience is ruined, it's, it's, and it's very hard to get something good out of it. What do you – and I know we're getting into the micro here, but – so you're going to meet someone like Natalie with, in theory to push yourself over the goal line to mm. get her to do the movie. You know she's interested. Yeah. You know someone of her level, De Niro's level, they're going to come with really smart questions. Yeah. What do you, as a director, What? how are you coming, what are you equipped with? What are you ready to talk about? I could talk about the movie all day long because it's mine. You know, it's, it's way harder for me when I'm directing, there's times when I'm directing something I didn't write it and I... I'm kind of making it up. It's my interpretation. It's what I think. But, you know, but Garden State was from my, you know, from my heart, from my soul. You know, I I, I could talk about what I was trying to say all day long without any feeling intimidated for a second because it was, it was as true as, as anything I could say. And what's she asking you? She didn't ask that much, to be honest. I, she, I think she, I think a lot of times these meetings, if, if you like the writing, um, a lot of times the meetings are feeling you out. Like, are you... Are you normal? Are you? <laughs> yeah. What's it going to be like? You know, we were pl- going to be playing people falling in love with each other. What would the vibe be? You know, what's your style of directing? You know, how do you? It, 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 she, I, I, as I recall, granted it was, you know, um, 2003, but I, as I recall, she, she didn't have too many script questions. It was mostly just kind of like feeling me out and, and getting to know me as a, as a, as a, as a, as a director, actor, director, writer, and see if we clicked. And I, the lunch went great, and, and we, we we had some laughs, and and 
and we got along great. And but I remember thinking, and then I remember she was driving cross country. She was, she was going back to Harvard. Um, she was driving cross country with a friend, and she left the lunch to go to, to set out on the, on her way. And I thought, oh, that went really well, but oh no, like, am I going to have to wait till she gets back to Boston to find out if she's gonna if she's in or not? Yeah. And a testament again to her being cool. Like later that day, my agents called me. He's like, she's in. Did you cry? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god. Well, I was thrilled, of course. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Because again, she was the archetype I was writing for. I never. I remember, you know, when you make a film, you make these lists. And what I did was I had done Natalie Portman. And then you draw like a line underneath her and then make a list of people that are in the spirit of that because you're not going to get Natalie Portman. Yes. And I swear I had written Peter Sarsgaard and then a line and then a list of people that were in the spirit of, of Peter Sarsgaard. So you're not, you're not expecting – in fact, my producer said when I, when I got my dream cast, she said, just so you know, this will never happen again. And it hasn't. Right. <laughs> it, it, it hasn't in, in, in all the years I've been making stuff and acting and stuff. Um, it's very, it's uh, the odds of getting who you sort of pictured in your mind when you're writing it. Just, even if they like it, schedules or money or conflicts, it just never lines up like that, I have found. But at this time it did. And so Natalie said, yes, but then still we couldn't get the financing, believe it or not. With her? With Natalie um, and myself, we, we just, we still couldn't get it. So what happened was, Interesting thing happened. There was a small studio that wanted to make it. Our budget at the time was around $6 million. And they said, but we're not going to pay for it ourselves. We want to bring in an equity partner who, who can split the, the risk with us. These motherfuckers. Yeah. Just write the check, guys. <laughs> Let me deliver the magic. They'll never do that. <laughs> it's, it's harder than ever. I mean, it's, 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 no one ever said it was easy. Yes. Nobody said it was easy. It's beautiful. Thank you. That's Chris Martin. Wow. Thank um, you. So, um, See they bring in a, they bring in this financier and CAA found this guy. His name was Gary Gilbert, and he and his brother had created a, a mortgage company, and they'd sold it to Quicken Loans, and they had become um, incredibly wealthy. And Gary was interested in getting out of the mortgage business because that was not interesting to him anymore. He wanted to begin to finance films. He had never done it before, but he was curious. Mm. But he had a good business sense, obviously. So I'll never forget. We go to this meeting. With Gary and uh, his partner uh, at the time, his name was Dan Halstead, and we went into this meeting, and they explained their how the changes they wanted made to the script, and also uh, we like Gary stick to the numbers, <laughs> like no, no, Gary didn't have changes. Oh, the studio did. Got it, got it. And got it. then Gary just sort of listening and nodding, and then they talked about the business shit about how they were going to split the cost of everything. Sure. And then never forget this key moment in my life. We went out into the parking lot. And Gary, new to Hollywood, is like, I got to tell you, this is the stupidest business model I've ever heard of in my life. Like, really they want is. me to split this with them, and then they're going to recoup their money before I do. And there's like a VIG. And he's like, I'm new to this business, but this is idiotic. He goes, is there any way you could, you could make this movie for like $3 Because if so, I'll just write you a check. And we were like, um, give us a second. <laughs> <laughs> so we went back to the drawing board. Completely reimagined how we could execute the film. Um, you know, in less days, no sets, um, a myriad of things. 
and figured out how to make it for $2.75 million. And uh, Gary paid for the whole thing out of his pocket. And we said, fuck you to those people. And he probably didn't bother you while you're making it. No, he was on set every day, loving every single second. Isn't that the best? Isn't that, oh man. It was a dream. Those are the guys you want to get money from, and they exist. Oh yeah, they're out there, but um, there's a lot of people after after their their wallets. So uh, it's it, you know really the stars do have to align. But they want their name on a chair at the end of the oh, day. Oh, that's all they really care about: hanging out with Natalie and having their name on a chair. Oh yeah, <laughs> I fuck. I did a movie, a cold weather western in Romania, financed oh by the Shah of Iran. Oh really? <laughs> of Iran, yeah. And it was bad. Cold weather western. And he showed up once and took us all out to a very nice dinner. I think he just needed to get rid of two and a half million bucks. And, you know, in Romania, that's Cold weather western sounds horrible. We were at the top of the Carpathian Mountains. It was negative 45 degrees. And at one point, there was a horse that developed frost on its belly. And the assistant director comes over to the director and goes, Oh, listen, the frost on the belly is, uh, it's... It means it will be minutes before the horse perishes. <laughs> I was like, if this fucking horse dies, I'm out of here. It's bad. It's called The Timber. You, you haven't seen I, it. I'm going to watch it tonight. I can't wait. Um, so I'm fascinated by people who have to direct themselves. Mm. And I've heard Clooney talk about this. And he said, you got to save yourself for last. Yeah. Save your coverage for last. Do you do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes I, I try to, you know, I, as you know, from making shit, sometimes where the sun is might dictate that, but, or, or some other piece of Michigas might dictate that. But if all, all things being equal, I always save my coverage for last because I want to, you know, directing something is, the hardest part is not only do you have to get it, but you have to get it good and you have to get it fast, especially in this, well, pretty much in, at all budget ranges, I guess, unless you're Scorsese, you're always running. Yeah. And so it's it's about how am I going to break this day down into gettable chunks so that I don't, I end the day. Because in indie films, there's no such thing as we didn't get it. I mean, if you didn't get it, it's not going to be in the movie. Yeah. So I want to put my effort into making sure I, I spend my time getting a perfect performance out of my co-stars. And then when, when the coverage is on me, I can kind of bang bang through it. I'll do my best, and and of course I, I want to be as, I want to be a good actor too. But I, I know how to get myself fast because I've also been thinking about it. I know, I, I know exactly how I want it. You know, one of the things I'll say about directing yourself is that um, by far, to me, the hardest thing of directing a film is making sure that the director and the star are on the same page. Because if they're not making the same movie, and I've been there. Uh, thing doesn't work at all. Yeah, you have to be making the same movie. The tone has to be the same. The style has to be the same. You have to have a great communication. You have to like each other. Ideally, doesn't always happen. But for me, I always think of it jokingly, but seriously, that I get to remove that from the equation because me, myself, and I are on the same page. Yes. We're making the same movie. We know exactly what we want. We don't have to sit there huddled by the monitors and have a talk about what we're looking for. It's just I get to remove that time and effort and, and often frustration from the mix. So it, it, it helps me in, in, in a lot of ways when I, when I do that. Do you find that, like, are you doing any playback when you're directing yourself? Yeah, you have to. Um, you got to watch it back. Make sure yeah, you got to right. watch it. Some, 
believe it or not, um, often for camera moves and um, and seeing the other performances that you might not be able to see. So, for example, if you and I are sitting here and it's a two-shot of us and the camera's doing a, a crane down and um, someone's doing a background cross and, or, you know, all these different things are happening, I, I can't pay attention to if the crane shot looked cool. I can't pay attention to yeah. if that background cross, you know, ended up in the right spot. So, I'll often watch playback to go, okay, cool, that shot ended up looking great. Let's move on. And then, of course, when it's my, my close-up, my, my single shot, I'll do like a bunch in a row. Smart. Until I feel like, because it's a waste. You got to use the, the playback monitor sparingly because it'll eat your day. You know, there's people who go watch every take. That, that'll kill your day. Yeah, crazy. So you got to, I will do like a handful of takes in a row. And then when I feel like, I think that was good, I'll go back and watch it and then go, okay, let's move on. I, I got it. And are you trying also to get gradations? Because I found that in, in little things like shorts that I've, I've shot, sometimes what I think in the moment as an actor, I'm just like, Put it in the fucking bank. Like, that's the one. And then I'll get in the edit and I'll be like, you know, the one where I wasn't completely, where I didn't feel completely dialed in because maybe it was the first take mm. is actually way more real and way more appropriate for the energy. Is there some variation? I, think, I, I wish I did that more. I was funny. I was just talking to Frankie Shaw. I don't know if you uh, know who that is. She's wonderful. Um, um, actor, director, um, you should interview her. Yeah. She had a show called Smilf that was... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. Incredibly great. done. And she wrote and directed it and acted in it. And she's she's um, a real talent. Anyway, she was saying how she tries to give herself a range because of, of different performances because by the time you get in the edit room, you go, oh my God, I should have done this funnier. I should have done this more dramatic because you didn't know when you saw the whole piece. I wish I'd do more of that. I always, I, I usually lock into a way I want to do it and just try and get that best. Again, because I'm in a hurry and I, and there's not a lot of time. So I'll, I'll, uh, I have a pretty clear idea of how I want it done. And then I'm just on myself to get it good. But I do think there is definitely something to be said if you, if you have the the bandwidth and the and the and the the mental bandwidth to be able to go. Let me do it. Let me do one dramatic. Let me do one a little bit lighter. Let me do sure. one. You know, because you don't know until you get to the edit room what what you're gonna need. I've directed actors, by the way, who do a wide range of 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 performances. Some like they'll take one, will be broad and insane, and then take two is totally underdone, and then yeah. take three is somewhere in between and. That's that's how some actors work, and then you get in the edit room and go, "Oh my god, that broad one is fucking insane." That's not this movie, but I'm glad he tried it. Um, but thank God we have take four where he really found the pocket. Yes. Um, I'm not that style of actor usually. I mean, if a director asked me to be, I could, but I I usually just try and pick what I want to do and do do variations of that. Do you? have any counsel like is there anyone who you're a producer or a collaborator who is watching your back when you're directing yourself yeah. where you go like was that good dude yeah you need that and and for me on garden state in particular it was it was a, a bunch of people it was the, the cinematographer larry Schur, who's by the way probably going to win the oscar for uh for joker this year he should he did that yeah oh he's doing well he's incredible good for you larry jesus he shot two of my films uh garden state and i wish i was here he's he's a genius but but also a f um a filmmaker himself so um he would you know i i i create an environment i mean i don't want just i don't want like anyone like the crap service guy saying <laughs> right. like bro that was too much but you know you create an environment where obviously my producer 
the first AD, um, who's, um, whose name's Michael Lerman, and he's become like the biggest first AD in the business. And Larry Scher, the cinematographer, you create an environment where people you trust can whisper in your ear and go, do you sure you might want to do another one because I was just thinking, da, 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 and I go, oh, that's right, you know? Yeah. Because you might miss stuff going, you know, it's awesome when someone goes, you know, we're coming from that last scene and you were in this headspace. Do you maybe want to do one? And you go, oh my God, I missed that. You're right. Thank you. Oh, uh, you, have, you have to have that. You I get by with when a I, little help from my friends. Yeah, exactly. Right? When I when I haven't had that, it it, it, it the thing isn't as good because there's been times where I've um, directed stuff and I'm and I'm acting in it and I go to Video Village because I feel like that was a killer take and I get there and there's nobody there and I'm like this is fucking terrifying. I don't want this much responsibility. I need. I mean that's that was that happened to me on a on a project and I I remember feeling instantly terrified that there was no one who had my back and there was no one there to say good or bad or do you want to try one like this um that was uh, a really a, a frightening experience so it's so important to have those people yeah I think there's a certain level of checks and balance. And I remember I did this one movie and granted I was miscast from the beginning, but I remember seeing it and I just came from a total place of ego and fear um, in my approach to the character. Cause I wanted to be whatever weird quasi version of a leading man I thought I was. Mm. So there was just a lot of fucking stoic looks. Oh really? Posing. You were giving like fuck me eyes to the camera. It was bad. Zach. I, I got to see this. <laughs> it's one. so bad. <laughs> And I remember watching it, and granted, it's on me, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, the, the buck stops with me, and yet I did think, because there was a fair amount of people, producers, director, I thought, why didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> like, why did you let me do this for months? Yeah. It's on you, I think, a lot of times to, to uh, sometimes I feel like people don't want to tell you, and you almost have to initiate it. Mm. You know, there's times where I just did a film where... I kept going to the director, like, is, is it good? Like, you know, t tell me if you want me to do it smaller. Like, I, 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 you, know, you, get, you can get in your head if there's no feedback at all. Yes. And so I'll sometimes seek it out. I don't want to be like a needy actor, but, but at the same time, I don't want someone to not be giving me feedback because they're worried about hurting my ego. I mean, this is, this is too important. So, so please, like, am I being too, am I, are, you know, I'm, are we making the same movie? I think it was Sidney LeMay who uh, uh, was the one who kept saying, are we making the same movie? And I think of that phrase all the time. Like, are we, are, am I doing, am I doing it right? Am I, is the tone right? Are we making the same movie? You know, I, yeah. I, I think about that all the time because that's, that's key. You, you, the thing will never work if everyone's not making the same movie. Have you heard, and it might be folklore, the There Will Be Blood story about Daniel Day-Lewis? No. This gives me a lot of hope, actually, which was, I think it's true. And if it's not, I've repeated it way too many times. Daniel Day-Lewis, they're shooting the movie. Daniel Day, the fucking, you know, the Tom Brady of acting. And he's like, two weeks in, and PT's watching the, the, the dailies and everything they've shot for two weeks. And Daniel had made a decision in his prep. It wasn't necessarily wrong, but for whatever reason... In execution, it wasn't coming across quite right on screen. She's so watching two weeks of what they have, and PT's like, 
something is not working here. And it's not an inability of Daniel Day-Lewis. It's just like something got lost in translation. So he takes the greatest actor in the world and says, I got to show you something because you've made a decision that's not quite translating. And they watched all the footage for two weeks. Daniel said, I see what you mean. And they reshot it. Oh, my God. But, like, obviously you need dough to do that. But thank God. I have a, That's amazing. I have, I have a story like that that I heard. Again, I'm not sure if it's lore or true, but American Beauty, which is a movie I really love a lot. Yeah. It was Sam Mendes' first film. And as the story I heard goes, and people can Google this, maybe it's not true, but is that they shot for a week. And, you know, that movie has a very specific tone. And if you don't nail the tone, the film doesn't work. Yeah. But, Apparent, and it was Spielberg. It was it was DreamWorks, I think. So he went to Spielberg and said, "I I fucked up. I didn't get this tone right. I I know what I'm doing wrong, but we got to start over." And apparently they let they let him, and they like, and that film initially had a whole bookend of, of a trial that was cut out, and you know it's it's um it's one of those stories. Another one that I, again, could be lore, but I think is true is that Brad Pitt in Seven, if you look closely, a lot of his lines are 80 yard. Really? Um, for people who don't know what that is, that's when you go back after you're done with the movie and you you kind of lip sync to yourself and, and re-record lines, usually because it wasn't recorded right or Sometimes you need to add a line of exposition or something. But if you look at Seven closely, which is a movie I really love, a lot of Brad Pitt's lines are are, are ADR'd. And I think it's uh, the, the story I had that he didn't like his performance and he went back and changed a lot of his perform- vocal performance in in post. Which is amazing because it's I think the movie's, I think his performance in that movie is so masterful. That's awesome. I, I remember I got to do like two scenes in a movie with Pacino, but my scenes were only with him. So I was like, great, I'm in. And, you know, God bless him. He was like kind to me. And he said, I think I asked him about ADR and he goes, oh, I love it. He loves ADR because he can, he's like, you can change your performance. Yeah. I've never done that. I mean, I've never, I've never had, I don't like the way it looks ADR. So I, I, and as a filmmaker, when I'm in charge, I, I only do, I, I, I'll only do it when absolutely necessary. Yeah. The bare minimum. So, I'm, I'm dying to know this. You make Garden State, you're in this house editing, toiling away. When does, I know what it feels like. Do you know what the film was originally called? What? Large's Ark. No. Not as good. <laughs> <laughs> it was called Large's Ark. And the funny thing is there was a guy who was working, when I, I, I was editing in this living room and I was, and there was no furniture and there was a guy putting in uh, the landline um, and he was a nice guy and he was making small talk with us. He saw that we were editing a movie and he kept saying, what's the movie called? And I'd say, Large's Ark. And he'd go, what? And I'd go, Large's Ark. And he'd go, oh, okay. And then, you know, he'd go work and then like a little bit later he'd come back and go, what's it called again? And I go, fuck, we got a problem here. <laughs> That's awesome. So the, the the guy putting in the landline was the original a reason that I that I knew I had to change the title. Thank you, Tony from Pack Bell, employee number seven eight four nine seven three two. So when do you start? When? Sorry, I interrupted you. I forgot your question. No, I I was gonna ask like, 
there is nothing more intoxicating when you have a movie that's working and especially something like this, right? Where people love discovering it and mm. being, you know, everyone knew about Joker from the moment they started shooting something like this. Not only people can then say they discovered it, that it's there. It's like their own little thing. So when does that start? When does it start feeling real good when people start seeing the movie? Well, the, the, the real key moment was at Sundance because, you know, I, 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 you know, I was in film school. I knew all the lore of Sundance. I had read books about Sundance, and you know, this was the height of of Sundance, re, really. And you know, um, the 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 famous stories of uh, of uh, Harvey Weinstein. I know we're not probably supposed to talk about Harvey anymore, but Harvey. Oh, we was, talked. To, I've ta talked a lot about him. Harvey on the was pod. a key character in the story, so I can't leave him out because um, at the time a filmmaker's fantasy was that your cell phone would ring after your movie premiere and it was Harvey Weinstein and he wanted to release your movie. That was like, he was, he was a God. The Kingmaker. He was a Kingmaker. Yes. And, um, the movie premiered at, uh, in the Eccles theater at Sundance. 1200 people, right? Yeah. It's big. It's big. And it's, it's, it's the, it's, it's one of the highlights of my whole life. Um, you know, we had made the movie for two, two, seven, five, and everyone had passed on it. And um, the lights go down, and I'm in the back of the theater, and the movie starts, and I just start sobbing in the Ugh, back. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know if it would sell. I didn't know what the hell would happen. All I know is I'd made it. I was there at the Eccles Theater at Sundance with my whole family there. No one had seen the movie. No, no one in my family had seen the movie. My parents didn't know if I'd made something good or not. And the reaction was so incredible that uh that 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 happened we were at an after party and and my cell phone rang and and you know because he always knew how to get in touch with you and it was harvey weinstein and he wanted to buy the movie and then peter rice who's another was another kingmaker at fox searchlight he wanted to buy the movie and we had all these bidders trying to buy the movie and uh and it happened that 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 fantasy young filmmaker fantasy thing happened to me oh, and so and then is it just blast off? Is it a blur from that moment on? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, again, I, I, I had no idea. I was very, very humble about it. I, I, I didn't think, I, I thought, oh my God, you know, every step of the way, I never thought any of this would happen. I, right. I thought, oh my God, that's so, I'm so fucking happy. It's going to get a distribution. Oh my God, I'm so, you know, every, every, <laughs> I've got high-end engineers. I'm sure I can just... <laughs> I think you should leave it in. I think you should people hear the, oh, what the, my workman guy is doing. It's He's I fixing just, a screen, but it's a very loud process. I just want to let you guys know, Zach is going to have a beautiful new addition to his very beautiful home <laughs> by the time a, this well, is well, over. It's not that fancy. I'm going to have a working <laughs> screen door. Um, what was I going to say? Um, so then it came out, and then, yeah, it was, it was, that, that was kind of a blur. I mean, the reaction was a blur. And, 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 and then the soundtrack went platinum, and then the sound... I remember... You know, in the Virgin Megastore in Union Square, um, which remember when there used to be record stores, but they, I would always go in there and they had a, um, they had a soundtrack section and the, uh, the soundtrack section, I'd never seen this before and I'd never seen it since before they all disappeared, but they had, they put up a giant sign in the soundtrack department that says 
please do not ask. We are out of the Garden State soundtrack. Wow. That's like Jordans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeezys. Wow. So then that went platinum and it won a Grammy and and um, and then the independent. I saw you at the Independent Spirit Awards and I won best first filmmaker, best first film, and and uh, it was it was it was beyond any any imagine anything beyond my wildest imagination. Is I have to I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this and I forgive me for projecting, but I I would imagine that I I might be right. You and I grew up similarly, East Coast Jewish kids, not bad looking dudes, but we're you know not Chris Hemsworth over here, right? You have a hit huge movie like that, along with a hit TV show. I imagine the world and women in an instant start looking at you so differently. Was that a trip? Was it a what? Was that a trip? Like, was that a head fuck? Or were you just like, oh my God, this is all I ever dreamed of? What's that like? Uh, I don't know. I don't want to talk about that. It feels so crass. But not like. Yeah, I, my dating life improved, sure. I don't mean. I, I mean more from was were you delivered in that moment right like was your ego so satisfied in that moment that you were like oh this is everything i'd ever wanted or were you no i've never felt that yeah i'm I'm, you know probably that comes with being an erotic jew no matter how good things are i always feel like oh my god this is going to end any second now and the world's coming to come crashing down um no i never felt i i always felt um I mean, my com- you know, my confidence increased, of course, because I felt like, you know, for so many, my whole life up to that point, I had felt like m- misunderstood and, and lonesome and alienated. And so, yeah, for imagine, you know, it's it, any. I'm sure anyone listening can 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 relate that if you know you're if you put down your all your insecurities and and the things you were depressed about and and you put it into a piece of art. And had the and got it out there, and then it had this reaction. You 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 feel like, oh my God, I'm not I'm not alone. There's other people that feel like this, and it was it was very life affirming, and it gave me it, it certainly gave me a lot of of confidence. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's funny. I interviewed Neil Brennan for the podcast, and he said he asked me about moments like that for me, where I've had things that really translated in moments that didn't. And he's like, you probably didn't deserve either one of those. In the respect of, he's like, you probably didn't deserve to feel that good when it was really connecting and people were saying the highest things about you, nor when you did something you were utterly embarrassed of and when people were going after you. Mm. He's like, but that's our business. Yeah. And it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. The highs can be so incredibly high and the lows can be really low. You know, you can work your ass off on something for years. And then it finally comes out, and the critics hate it. Movie bombs, and it's uh, you know, I've I've obviously had you know, there's plenty of times where it doesn't work, but but man, when it does, it it is uh, there's nothing there's nothing more glorious. I was listening to Todd Phillips interviewed about Joker, and he said someone told him, and it was the impetus for him to decide to really go for it with Joker. He said, "Goodwill is perishable." in this business that you do something and it, and you amount a certain amount of goodwill, but you got to do something with it. So how quickly after garden state do you go every, you know, I'm the golden boy for this little period. Yeah. How quickly do I, I do my next thing? That landing? Well, partially because I was on scrubs for, for, I was signed to a scrubs contract for, for what ended up being nine years. And that's like nine months a year that you're Yeah. Working. It was very, I tried a lot to get, I acted in films. Um, but in terms of making my own stuff, 
I didn't have another screenplay ready to go. I mean, if I had had one locked and loaded, I mean, I think that's, you know, I look at um, uh, Damien Chazelle, who, who, you know, he he he, he has such, such a success with um, the drummer movie. What's a Whipla- Whiplash? Whiplash. Whiplash, is that what it's called? Yeah, Whiplash, and then and then La La, La Land. Like he had he had La La Land ready to go, which was which when I when I saw that happen, I went, oh, that 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 guy's smart because he had a second one locked and loaded. Yeah. I didn't have a second. One. I I it's like the, when you hear these these like um, musicians who 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 you know I spent my life writing that album, and you you're like now they got to write the second one. It's really hard. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt about Garden State. I was like I wrote that movie like. For, for years like now I need a second one so I didn't have a second one locked and loaded I was on scrubs which was a high class problem but so I I probably didn't um, I didn't strike while the iron was hot with, with that um, I, I wanted to act so I I acted in stuff and I I um, um, and I adapted a film I, I, I was I was very uh, confident I was going to get made and then it fell up uh, and it was about to go and then it fell apart at the last second and so I had had lots of um, almosts but uh, by, by no means struck while the iron was hot with all that um, success of Garden State um, but I can't complain at all because I was on the show and I loved the show and the show was a dream um, and, and there, the show has the most incredible fan base and I, I felt really loyal to, to delivering for those folks isn't it interesting how like I I did the show Drake and Josh for many years mm-hmm. on Nickelodeon and I've done like things like this movie The Wackness and I'm super proud of yeah. and, and and yet there's something about a half hour comedy show that comes into people's homes that yeah. makes such an impression. Yeah. Well, um, I think you become uh, uh, you know particularly when when our shows were on it there was a real delineation between the television and, and film. You would go to the theater and see a star up on the big screen. But people like you and I um, were, were invited in people's homes, and, and kids grew up watching us, and families would laugh about it together. And it was a, it was a bonding experience. It's a, it was a, it was a, it's a very um, unique and special relationship. And, and the fan bases are just incredibly loyal. Uh, you know, they, 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 I run into people on the street, I'm sure you do too, people feel like they know you. You know, they, it's like, it isn't like, I heard this story about George Clooney, I, I don't know, again, I have no idea if it's true, but I like the story, and that is that he came off a plane, again, this is not like now when, when everything's television, but, sure. but back in the day when there was more of a delineation between movie star and TV star, and that he saw, um, I forgot who it was. Let's say it was Russell Crowe or something. That he got off a, pla- a plane uh, with, with Russell Crowe, and and he saw people going, "Oh my God, look, it's Russell Crowe!" And they were pointing from afar, "Look, Russell Crowe, Russell Crowe!" And they saw George, you know, who had been who had been on ER for so long, and they went, "George!" And they went over <laughs> and gave him a big hug, like because it wasn't there was, you know, people feel like they know you, which is a, which is a which is a wonderful feeling when you travel the world and and you have. Uh, you kind of have friends everywhere. Sometimes they think they know you a little too well. You know what I'm saying? I, 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 don't, have, I don't have that many <laughs> negative fan encounters. Do you? I mean, only when people are drunk can they be a little much. But. Yeah, I've gotten some drunky, handsy dudes. <laughs> You've been groped? Guys want to hold me. Really? Yeah, they want to hold me. They want to... I my, <laughs> my favorite is just when they come up and they go, they say a line from the... Uh, did you have a catchphrase? 
Oh, um, kind of. I mean, we had we had not not like what you talk about, Willis, but like we had <laughs> we had like a, a handful of jokes that were people's favorites. So I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I have a few. I have like one very what, much what in particular. It? I don't want to. Oh, come on, man. Come on. What is it? Is it what you're talking about, Willis? <laughs> Hug me, brother. Hug me, brother? Hug me. Hug me, brother. Yeah. Is that a good delivery? It's, uh, you'll, you'll forgive me that I haven't seen the show, but I was sc- too old for it. I, it was scary good. <laughs> Hug me, brother. That's really well Can done. I play you in the film? <laughs> <laughs> that would be... Unbelievable! Oh my God, this is this is how Hug me, brother. Are made. Uh, yeah, we had we had we had we had a handful of those. One of mine was 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 Eagle, which is so bizarre because <laughs> what happened was Brendan Fraser was doing a guest arc on the show, and he was like a big, burly, f- funny, wacky guy, like he is in real life. And my character was so nerdy and dorky, and the idea was that uh, in the show that Brendan Fraser would pick me up. Skinny JD and started spinning me around, and on the day I thought it would be funny if if my character, even though he didn't want to be picked up, once he was in the air spinning, he just was loving it so much that I just improvised eagle like I was soaring like an eagle. It was so stupid and silly. It cracked us up on the set, but never thought it would even be in the show. Yeah, and now I cut to two thousand and like however many years later. No matter where I go in, on earth, I could be in Jerusalem and yes. someone would be like, hey man, Eagle. <laughs> I love it. You made it. Eagle has landed. I've gotten into a really bad thing for my own amusement. And granted, Zach, I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> so now when people approach me, I was on a show called Drake and Josh. So at times people feel compelled to say, hey, where's Drake? Oh yeah, I get where's Turk all the time, yeah. Or how's Drake? <laughs> Something related to Drake. Right. But you have patience for these wonderful people, right? Of course. Okay. But sometimes to amuse myself, I say... Dead? Who? <laughs> I say who? I, they say, hey, where's Drake? And I go, who? I do that with Faison on, online. Like, we'll be on Instagram or something, and he'll write something to me, and I'll write, new phone, who dis? <laughs> <laughs> so good. And when I see people's adorable face drop <laughs> and i go i'm just kidding he's great he's great he's right behind me it's funny i get that's a common thing i get on the street a lot too is where's turk people want to know they assume you're hanging out i know but it's funny that like the person who's yelling where's turk couldn't know couldn't possibly know because this is their one time to yell where's turk that 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 everybody else has chosen to wear to yell where's turk sure so um i always think that's kind of funny like I guess we all have like a the first thing that comes to your mind, which would be, "Where's Turk?" I, and I, sometimes I'm like, I, I really I don't know. He's got like nine thousand kids. I imagine he's with one of them. Yes, he's very successful. <laughs> um, okay, last two questions, uh, and it's sort of a two parter in this first one. A, what's De Niro like? And B, I imagine you have had some incredible apostles in this business, like really talented people that have given you some good advice especially when it comes to filmmaking, what, anything you want to share, anything that really imprinted itself that you were like, wow, I still do that to this day. Um, wow. That's fucking a really good question. I wish I'd prepared. You should have given me the homework to think about that. You could take your time. You um, could tell I'll me answer, about De Niro. I'll answer the first one first. De Niro could not be nicer. Very shy. You know, what's crazy about working with him is that, um, I never really worked with someone who was more different before action 
than than after because mm. he's he's very shy kind of to himself in in the, he has a, you know his little his chair and his you know his his few um you know entourage people you know hair makeup whatever sure. assistant and but then and he and he's kind of just a shy fella who warms up to you as as it goes along to the point where my girlfriend and I went to dinner at his house which is again one of the highlights of my life oh my gosh getting invited just a double date at De Niro's house uh, I actually interned at the Tribeca Film Center where his offices were when I was however old in 19 like 96 so I can't I, this was not something I ever fathomed would happen and we become friendly we text which is um he's just he's he's a very 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 sweet man emoji but, but, guy what does he text emoji? i don't think What's he's got an emoji? emoji i don't think he sent me an emoji yet <laughs> he will but i can't well, i'm not sure he knows emojis i mean i'm sure he knows what they are <laughs> i've sent him emojis but i haven't got one. but um and then and then the director calls action and he's fucking 1000 denier percent denier and being big and crazy and you know the guy that we all love from the movies but then they call cut and he's like shoulders go down and he kind of walks over to his chair and um very surreal um and 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 but a lovely lovely man mm. and um not just not just someone who's only going to you know would would ask you would ask me questions about my life and and um and you know, not just someone who's solely interested in, in themselves, and and um, I don't know. I I, I really hope that we um, continue being friends because I um, he's he's one of my favorites by far, and just being able to to shoot the shit with him is really cool. Were you able to pick up just like the small? Like, were you able to distill down one or two things when acting with him, where you were like, "Oh, that's so good." I think one of the things I saw that he really does a lot is. He doesn't get obsessed with the lines. Obviously, he wants to 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 say what the what the writer's written, and he and he'll and he'll nail it. But he does a lot of like he. One, one thing I like that he does is he gets into the character, and he is becomes the character, and mm. then in, he's doing the spirit of what's written. But he's just improvising and being the guy and finding new shit and. And, you know, he might do another take where he's closer to the lines, but then he'll do a take where he's just, it's its the spirit of what needs to be said, but he's just riffing as the guy. And some of that stuff's just incredible. I mean, apparently he's, he's he improvised uh, You Talking to Me, you know, um, back in the wow. day. Wow. So, you know, he's been doing that his whole life where he just, you know, if you're him and you're that level of an actor and you really become the guy, yeah. then, then I can tell you what the guy's going to say. The guy's going to fucking say this. Man, <laughs> did you hear Marin's story about acting with him on Joker? No. He was, you know, he has like three great scenes and mo they're all with De Niro. So Mark Marin is doing the scene and then he's like, he, he's like, De Niro looks at me and he kind of is like got something going on. And then he kind of goes over to Todd Phillips and they have an exchange and then Todd comes over to Mark and he goes, it's a little big. Yeah. A little big. And he's like, I know that was De Niro's oh, note. Oh, of course. Well, I mean, he's fucking one of the great actors of all time. Yeah. So I, I, I saw him totally weigh in a few times on people's performances because, you know, no matter how good the director is, unless maybe he's Scorsese, well, even Scorsese, he's not the actor that De Niro is. So De Niro's judgment of going, you know, whisper to the director being like, he's good, but have him bring it down. Uh, is is wise like you've got the greatest actor alive yeah, on take set it. take his advice right so um, yeah i saw that happen a few times in terms of great advice uh, as a as an actor or director or what whatever you i mean maybe i should hold it because i'll give you my final question which is 
Well, maybe you can answer it. Uh, answer both these things. My final, final I question. I got one as an actor. Yeah, I want it. I think that um, advice that I, I don't know if it was given to me or I just figured it out. I probably figured it out myself. <laughs> oh, God. I'm hanging up a picture of Josh in my living room right Hold now. On. Wow. An oil painting, no less. <laughs> God, I was, By the I way, I'm giving you this uh, hammering sound effect for free. Thank um, you. I, I, <laughs> There's a bunch of Foley artists listening to this podcast right now. Hey, guys, if you use that hammering noise, I want credit. That's hammering at Zach Braff's <laughs> house, 2019, December. Um, when I started directing things and being on the opposite side of the table uh, from the actors, I realized something, and that is that actors should not come into the room nervous, even though that sounds hard, but come in with the attitude of they really want me to be the one. Because yes. casting is very stressful and very hard and scary because you're so nervous you're not going to find the guy. So um, I think it's it, – then, when I, then when I switch back to the other side of the table and I'm going into audition for things, which I do, I, I come in the room going, you know, I'll, I'll be right or not. That's not up to me, but I but I know that if I'm great, they're going to be so happy. They're rooting for me to be great because if I'm great, they have the guy and the stress is gone. I'm the antidote to their stress if I'm great. So come into the room knowing those people that have a ton of coffee and look stressed and tired and 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 and, and bloated are dying for you to be amazing. So go in there like they're rooting for you. Yes, um, and it's just a subtle switch in your in your brain. But it's something that's really, really helped me. And also, I've had people come in to audition for me, and they're incredible. They're like next-level actors. They're just not right for the part. They might not look like so-and-so's brother, or they might not look like... So you can't get too in your head about why you didn't get the part, even though that's a tricky too. But it, it will often come down to like, yeah, he's, he's a good actor, but he doesn't look like what we need him to look like. Yes. Um, final question. I ask everyone on the podcast this. What are your one or two Zach Braff commandments? Truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else? Um, the truth always comes out. It may take a week. It may take a year. Hold on. I'll start over. Yeah. Feels like a lot of work for a screen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving this all in. God damn it. Is he... Is he building? I feel like in my mind, he's, he's building the screen from scratch. He's got raw metal down there and he's weaving. You're going to come outside and you're going to have a small fort built. What if I, I come down there and he's built like a steel sculpture? Hey, hey, man, I, I finished early, so I built you this steel giraffe. The, well, then you're a jerk for being this critical of him. <laughs> That's really it's generous. A, it's a topiary that you can plant a, a vine on. Um, I think that... Um, the truth always comes out. Um, so I, I think it's best to be as honest as possible because um, the truth always rises to the top. Yeah. Do you want another one? What else? Ask me again. I'll see what bubbles up when you ask me this time. Sir Zachary Brown. Yes. Is it thank Zachary? You. I just was sending a, 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 a present to my girlfriend's parents, and I, I put the family name, mm. but the the thing online wouldn't let me not choose the Mr. Mrs. category. You know what I mean? And sure, they the, had like the 
30, they had 30 of them because it's, it's British. They had like commandant, Lord. honorable, Lord. And there were like 30 different options, but yeah. you couldn't choose none for some reason, which I think was a mistake in the program. Because if I wanted to say, you know, Braff family, I had, it had to be Mr. and Mrs. Braff family, which mm. doesn't look good on the card. There. So I chose Rabbi. I think we got to end it there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. That was Thank fun. Thank you. That was it. That, that was Zach Braff, and that was me, and that was our podcast. Thank you for listening. Take care. Take care of others. Bye-bye.